Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast, episode 130. I'm Rachel Lyon here with host Eric Trexler. Eric, good morning. Happy Monday. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rachel. I'm doing great. I got my vaccination shot yesterday. I'm all excited. Nice. Was it one or First two? First one. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah, one or two. I was like Moderna yeah, or Pfizer. Number one. I've got 30 days to wait and I get, I get number two and I'm a relatively safe and free man. That's fantastic. I know. And our guest today, let me introduce Eric Goldstein. He is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity for the Department of Homeland Security's CISA. Uh, he, too, is vaccinated. He informed us. This is very exciting. And so thank you so much for joining joining us on the podcast this morning, Eric. It is indeed very exciting. And uh, Rachel and Eric, it's good to be here. And I'm really looking forward to chatting with you both. Yeah. So we're going to have we some were, fun. Absolutely. Get ready. <laughs> So before we were talking about, I mean, this is a really exciting time in cybersecurity, and you're coming back to CISA uh, from being at its predecessor uh, agency. And I, I got to say, I mean, where to start, Eric, really? I mean, because there's so many huge things happening, these huge expansive attacks, solar winds, you know, Microsoft Exchange, and the attackers are getting aggressive. I mean, you know, how does CISA even start to figure out focus areas on how to move ahead? Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, thank, thanks for having me in today. I'm really looking forward to chatting about my agency's role uh, in national cybersecurity. It is, as you note, a really exciting time. I think that's that's one word for it. Uh, we are certainly seeing intrusion campaigns, uh, as you've noted, um, of, of heightening scale and sophistication. And these present a challenge for all organizations, uh, big and small, federal, state and local, private sector. Um, at CISA, our role really is, is twofold uh, in this area. Um, it's to provide generally applicable services, best practices, assessments, guidance that all organizations can adopt. Because a truism that we're seeing across many of these intrusions is still cybersecurity best practices, you know, patching, demising end-of-life assets, using multi-factor authentication. Uh, these are still tried-and-true mechanisms that are effective in dealing with most, although not all, potential intrusions. So, so Eric, one of the things we, we see, though, is most organizations, and I'll leave it at that broad, still can't get basics down, like updating and patching and, and basic cybersecurity hygiene. At some point, do we say enough's enough? Do we, do we say, look, this just isn't possible. There has to be a better way. So I think it is, it is a true statement that there has to be a better way. And I think it's useful to think through why organizations are still struggling with these sort of basic practices. And it could be a problem of awareness. It could be a problem of resources. It could be a problem of prioritization. And I think each of those three areas, there's a solution set that we as a cybersecurity community can work through and drive. 
I think, awareness. Uh, you know, we need to be deeply focused as a government on sharing uh, alerts, warnings to make sure that organizations understand uh, when to patch um, the most critical vulnerabilities. Um, from a resource perspective, uh, we need to figure out how to drive uh, risk management investments across all organizations that allow them to take these basic steps. And where an organization is unable to manage their IT in a way that allows them to patch known vulnerabilities, then perhaps they shouldn't be managing their own technology. And of course, there are many highly capable third parties that will gladly take that burden off of a given company's hands. Um, and then there's the aspect of prioritization, where you have companies that are able to manage their own IT, but for whatever reason uh, are unable to prioritize these key measures. And I think that's where agencies like CISA have a key role to play to arm CISOs and CIOs with the risk-based information they need to make the business decision to invest in cybersecurity, which may not be self-evident to non-technical individuals who are weighing uh, the bottom line when deciding whether to invest in a given area. Yeah, so there's really not an easy, as we've talked about on the show over and over, two years plus now, answer to this. Um, but, but we're still, we're just still struggling, Rachel. Sorry. And, you know, the interesting thing I find, you know, Eric and Eric, is it's almost like you have to go back to the Stone Age in some regards. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, one of the SolarWinds incidents, some company was so far behind in patching, they weren't even affected. I think they hadn't patched in like three years or something like that. And, and you know, I know critical infrastructure is one of your big rocks as well, Eric. And, you know, you talk about that too. I mean, do we just go back to where everything's manual and, and driven by a human, which is so inefficient uh, and not realistic, but you know, what's the answer ahead? You know, I think that we need to take a a risk based approach with thinking about critical infrastructure because it is not the case for any environment uh, that we are able to prioritize everything equally. Right? That is that is not prudent investment. It's not prudent risk management. And anybody on the business side of a given organization will say, you know, this is not making the best use of of our shareholder dollar, of our tax, of our taxpayer dollar, etc. And so from the point of view of critical infrastructure, it's critically important to begin with the question of what is the function or service that we are trying to provide and what are the critical technology assets that are essential to providing those essential functions or services. And once you have that conversation, once you identify what, what we call in CISA the high value assets, then you can prioritize both your security and your resiliency measures to best assure the availability, the integrity, the confidentiality of those assets under all conditions. And Rachel, I think you make a great point because there are certainly technology assets that are so critical to a given service or function that perhaps you do want those to have manual failovers. Perhaps you do want to make absolutely sure that those are not accessible on the internet. Perhaps you do want to make sure that they have um, you know, fully duplicate uh, resilience measures such that if there is a loss of integrity or availability, you still have confidence in the viability of that underlying service or function. But beginning with that service approach allows you to then figure out what's most important and how to prioritize scarce dollars for security and resilience. And, and Eric, how do you, how, how do you, you being CISA, how does CISA, I should say, look at that, right? You, you can't order, you can't mandate that a power company or a, a water plant 
protect themselves, even look at the risk-based equation and say, let me understand, right? Prioritization, as you talk about, yet if they get popped by an adversary, there's a good likelihood that that ends up on your desks. So how do you approach that from CISA where you really have the responsibility at some level, but you don't necessarily have the control and power? Is it education or what do you so do? It's, it's useful to look at the, the levers of change in this space and what can CISA do and what can our partners do to drive investments in prudent cybersecurity, particularly across these critical entities. And so, Eric, as you note, the provision of of voluntary services, what we call the partnership model at CISA, I think is a critical element here, right? Our ability to communicate broadly through through info sharing and analysis centers, through sector-specific agencies. So you mentioned water. We work in close partnership with, with the EPA, of course, with DOE for the energy sector. Those kind of partnerships allow us to scale broadly in addressing the resource Uh, pardon me, the awareness gap that we discussed previously to ensure that these entities at least understand what to do. But we also know that that won't resolve the whole problem, and it particularly won't resolve the resource challenge, right? So even if a company says, you know, I understand all the right things to do, but my security budget is X and you want me to do X plus Y, something has to give. And so we also need to work closely with our partners in the regulatory community, with our partners in state and local government, um, and across the executive branch to make sure that we're providing assistance, we're providing resources, including through grant funding where appropriate, and we're having these business conversations with executives outside of the IT community to help them understand that underinvestment or misinvestment in key security capabilities will actually result to uh, you know, greater impacts to their bottom line if an incident were to manifest yeah, yeah. versus just underinvesting in perpetuity. And, and then you left you left DHS in June of 17, I believe. You're now back. You were at NPPD before. Now you're with CISA, which is the evolution, if you will. How have you seen the landscape change from a, not, not from a threat actor perspective necessarily. I, I, I do care about that. I know our listeners do. But, but from the recipient, right? The organizations that you work with, the state and local governments, the private sector, information sharing. How has, how has that changed in the last four years almost. Absolutely. So I think we're seeing a few trends intersect, some of which are positive, some of which are are less so. I think one of the positive trends is we are just seeing a really increased uh, recognition among organizations of all sizes of the importance of cybersecurity. Uh, You know, uh, a few years ago, cybersecurity was was a priority for, for big companies, certainly in the financial sector, energy sector, telecommunications, but a lot of other sectors, uh, it was really much less of a focus. I think we are seeing that really change. And I think both high profile incidents and epidemics like like ransomware campaigns, we are seeing really raise the recognition of cybersecurity as a preeminent risk facing all organizations. At the same time, we are also seeing um, you know, tremendous increases in the use of network technologies. Uh, and although somewhat of a buzzword, um, the, the real ad 
advent and adoption of the Internet of Things, moving towards 5G, moving towards edge computing, uh, we are seeing rapidly increase the attack surface, and, and therefore we're seeing our adversaries develop techniques to compromise organizations that frankly just weren't commonplace a few years ago. And so we're seeing more recognition and more, more investment, but we're also seeing the vulnerability space increase, the impact of compromises increase as more and more pieces of infrastructure are interconnected and come online. And then, you know, Eric, it's also worth noting that we're also seeing our adversaries increasingly mature and invest in their capabilities to compromise both critical infrastructure and government agencies. So, so organizations in general are adopting these new technologies, 5G, IoT, you name it. They're becoming more, the attack surface is becoming more expansive and the adversaries are evolving also. Yeah, not a great, not a great uh, ending to the story. But what we say necessarily though, Eric, it's, um, you know, I, th- I think the events in the last four years and the ratcheting up, if you will, is almost like a blessing and a curse. Because I think what you were saying and talking to, you know, business leaders, in- until something catastrophic happens, they don't really want to invest in it because they think, oh, we're okay. It's not going to happen to us. But as we know, it's actually going to happen. So I-, I think that kind of contributes to why this is a more exciting time, even though we're getting it from all sides. Everyone's recognizing this is something that we have to really address. And I I read an interview that you did with Federal News Network, and I really liked how you outlined some of the four focus areas for CISA ahead and, you know, looking at zero trust principles and, you know, getting away from this perimeter based approach, but looking at the network, endpoints, servers, workstations. Um, You know, I I love that you're kind of leading by example and and showing the path forward. And, you know, is this how we're going to get ahead of the threat? I think so. And, And if we think about a few principles that as a country, we are already moving towards in cybersecurity and certainly CISA is doing our part to help catalyze and accelerate. I think one is this focus on visibility, on on getting visibility at every layer of a network stack so that we can rapidly identify adversary activity and possible intrusions, ideally very shortly after an intrusion occurs and certainly before lateral movement, exfiltration, other damage occurs. Um, and this is really important because I think you know what, what we have learned um, over the past, say, decade of cybersecurity is we are not going to block every intrusion at the perimeter. Uh, Those days are over in cybersecurity. And so really what we need to focus on are these, first of all, these layers of defense, and then also this move towards zero trust architectures where we're focusing on protecting assets, protecting accounts, um, and moving towards more of a micro-architectural paradigm where even if an adversary makes it in a network, we strictly limit what they're able to access, how they're able to move about, and most importantly, the damage they're able to cause or the data they're able to steal. So I think this this visibility focus is one key priority that that all uh, entities are, are trying to drive. I think another aspect, Rachel, building on one of your questions earlier is this focus on resiliency, this focus on figuring out, you know, at the end of the day, Technology is an enabler, right? Technology is not an end in itself. Technology is used to provide a service, provide a capability, offer a business offering. Um, And so figuring out what do we use technology for um, and and then how do we protect the most important technology assets in a way that lets the business keep running, let the agency keep running, keeps the power and the water still on. I think those are critical aspects to focus on. Yeah, I've seen a huge uptick in zero trust in the last probably two years, Eric. 
the, the, the message, the, the, the concept is getting out there. What I'm not hearing people talk about yet is resiliency. I'm not hearing them talk about visibility. We, you know, we, we've had, uh, we almost called it solar winds. I'll call it UNC 2542. I think that's the number at this point. There's so many names. Holiday Bear. We'll go with that. Yes. Um, we had that. And, and, and so many organizations are still trying to figure out what happened. Talking about that visibility and that resiliency component. I'm not hearing government employees necessarily talk about that. A little bit on the risk side, but zero trust is, is certainly top top of mind. I think that's because it's coming from the top down, right? Everybody wants zero trust. The, the generals, the admirals, the, the heads of agencies are talking about it. So therefore, the organizations are aligning behind zero trust. I'd love to hear a little more on visibility and resiliency because I think you're right. Yeah, and I'd certainly I think that that in some ways zero trust um, has been the focus of a lot of really thoughtful standards development and proof of concept mm. development and, and architectural work, um, of course, led led by companies like Google originally and now and now adopted far more broadly. Um, and I think looking at, you know, how do we achieve this kind of full environment visibility and how do we move to this kind of functional resiliency? I think there is there is great work being done there as well. But I think particularly on the resilient side, that's a really challenging problem. Um, and it's a problem that is going to require levels of investment that I think we frankly um, you know, haven't necessarily fully conceived of yet and, and also move us outside of just looking at IT investment, right? Because if you're talking about functional resiliency, that might mean changes you have to make to your business processes or to your physical plant um, outside exactly. of what you can do in an IT environment, which I think is, is absolutely critical, particularly for these kind of essential services, but does broaden the conversation in a way that I think we, we haven't fully seen manifest fast yet in most areas. Well, and it's much more it's a much more difficult conversation to have. I think that's I think that's right, although in some ways it's the conversation that we should be having need to have. Right. It's the right conversation. Right. It's just you, you can't have an IT person or a, an infosec person make a make a decision. It's now we have to involve other members. We have to understand the business better. It's the right way to go, I think. We just I haven't seen a lot of that over my career. So we need to evolve. That's right. I think the one thing I'd add there is is that is also how we should be doing cybersecurity in general, right? We we should not be thinking about cybersecurity, of course, as an IT function. We should be thinking about cybersecurity as a risk management function. And if you're going to have an effective cybersecurity risk program, it needs to involve, if you're a private company, you know, the lines of business and the legal department and the communications department and really the full the full portfolio of of groups in that company so you can actually drive the change that you need to seek. And we see the same thing in the federal civilian government where our cybersecurity programs can't just be the IT teams, they need to also include the mission delivery teams who are delivering services to the American people to make sure that we are able to achieve our shared goals of, of, of ensuring efficient service delivery that's done in a secure manner. And you really can't effectively separate those two. Have you, have you seen, I want to switch a little bit on you, but, but same, same line of, of talk. Have, have you seen a change with Sunburst? No, I'm going with a different name. Uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the exchange, the half name uh, exchange attacks of late. Have you seen a change in thinking at, at the CISA level on, on how, we, how we approach the problem set? Or are these just grave, grave attacks to the country uh, 
to the infrastructure. And, you know, it's really the same old problem, just larger scale. Yeah, I think that these attacks have illuminated a lot of the um, of the risk management challenges that we faced as a cybersecurity security community for years. Um, you know, I, I think if you if you survey practitioners in this space, you will probably not find a person who says, oh, you know, we we didn't think this was possible. This, this is something that we hadn't thought of before. Right. Um, you know, there's nothing inherently uh, novel here, um, except that it just catalyzes known areas for improvement that I think all organizations have long confronted. Uh, I think what it has done is catalyzed some real um, some real attention. You know, cybersecurity was always going to be a focus area for the Biden-Harris administration. Um, these campaigns have really just accelerated and catalyzed that critical focus area. And I think we are seeing similar focus on Capitol Hill and similar focus um, in the private sector to really now invest with, with urgency in some of the key changes that we've known were needed for quite some time. But it almost gives us a monument or a pivot point to say, hey, we we had sunburst. We had, you know, we need to do something. And and I do like, to your point, Eric, how the administration is looking at investments in this, you know, kind of pending executive order on breach disclosures, you know, and how is that managed? Because this is starting to get into really meaty topics that we have to address, as we've seen with these huge supply chain attacks. And, um, you know, again, the, the criticality of, of visibility. I mean, how, how, how do you determine the thresholds, though, for some of these breach disclosures or, you know, kind of how do you get to something that works for everyone, if that's even possible? So you know, looking at, at how an organization understands the IT risk post to its supply chain, which could be the software and hardware that it's introducing into its network, or it could be the trust relationship that a given organization has with a vendor or other third party, I think is really critical. And part of that relationship and part of that risk management process needs to be what kind of information does a vendor or a third party need to disclose to their customers. Um, and I think right now, you know, that is that is asymmetric across organizations. You know, when I've worked previously in the private sector, uh, there were thresholds that were defined sometimes at a business level, at the level of an organization, or even by a sector that, that would say, here are some best practices. Um, I think I think understanding, first of all, the key f- for all organizations to be receiving information um, on incidents, on vulnerabilities from their vendors to understand the risk that third parties are introducing to the customer network, and then also to the extent possible, standardizing what those disclosure data elements look like are a prudent risk management process for all uh, entities to adopt, um, the government included. And certainly there are there are levers that the government is, is thinking through to allow us to implement that, that sort of a process going forward uh, to the extent that a given agency hasn't already gone down that road. Because every agency is going to approach it differently anyway, right? I mean, depending on where they sit, you know, DOD is going to be much different than, you know, say, Health and Human Services, for example. Um, yeah. You know, but do they need yeah, to be? I, mean, <laughs> I guess I think sort of, sort of abstracting a little bit, there's there's probably a, a common set of best practices for third-party risk right. management. And obviously, mm-hmm. there are plenty of standards and guidance out there on this point, but I think there's probably a baseline standard of due care that most organizations of, of significant cybersecurity maturity should be thinking through. And then, you know, 
outside of the outside of that baseline of practices, um, then there may be a unique mission element where a given a given organization, because of the service they provide, the data they hold, the relationship that they have with their vendors, they might need some additional layering on top of that baseline. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I like that, though. I mean, I, I like getting to a baseline. And do you, know, so do you think it differs from the same place? small versus large agency or really the principles are pretty common? I think the principles are likely common across all organizations. And I actually don't think that there is a deeply unique um, government aspect here. I think all organizations that utilize third-party IT services or vendors here bear some some degree of of risk to their networks and their infrastructure from those trust relationships. I think that's that's an inherency. And so then thinking through, um, are there standard practices that should be adopted by all organizations, I think the answer may be yes. I think the challenge would be, how are those best practices implemented? And do all organizations have the resources to actually execute a third-party risk management program to protect their networks? Or you know, is there some heterogeneity there where small, medium, and large organizations, even if the principles are the same, the way they implement them is different simply because of their, their capacity to actually internalize that sort of due diligence? Or is there a way to actually have a third party, have the vendors do that for them. I think there are different models there that scale differently for various sizes of organizations. Yeah, I got to tell you, if I, if I ran a small business these days or even a small, or, a small organization of any sort, sort, I think I would just try to find an MMM SSP and just outsource it. It just, I wouldn't want to deal with it. I'd be like, here, you deal with this problem. Keep me safe. You know, I think that's a that's a tough challenge, too. It is a tough challenge, but I think there is a there is a real argument that that you know, we, we we spent the last half hour discussing how hard cybersecurity uh, remains uh, in this environment, and, and certainly uh, every organization should not be held equally responsible for securing their own networks if they don't reasonably have the resources, the capacity, the workforce to do that. Uh, within CISA, one area that we're really focused on going forward is is providing cybersecurity shared services uh, to to other yeah. agents. Agencies, which follows that exact same model. Uh, you know, a, a small agency uh, likely doesn't necessarily need to provide its entire cybersecurity program. There are likely efficiencies to be gained from CISA providing certain shared services to other agencies. And I think that's a model that is generalizable across organizations. Now, when you say that, are you talking predominantly Einstein, CDM, Group F and, and, and efforts like that? So it's a bit broader. So, so we okay. yeah we have uh, some authorities provided, particularly uh, in a bill from Congress last year, where we are able to provide a broader spectrum of shared services. Uh, and so we are we are now on the roadmap of of finalizing what those will be. Um, but certainly, this is a growth area for CISA that we that we feel will yield real advantages for federal civilian agencies, and to the extent possible, reduce the need for some of these smaller agencies to manage their full cybersecurity program. Uh, when uh, CISA may be able to do it uh, more cost effectively and more efficiently. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea. Let, let the agency get back to what they need to do, knowing they're better protected than they would be if they had to do it themselves. I think that's a great idea. Um, so, Eric, you know, 
kind of as we coming up on our time here, but I, I you've been on the cyber front lines for a really long time. Wait a time. minute, which Eric are you um, talking to? Because my best friend I growing think- up was named Eric also, and I'm getting very confused again. <laughs> I'm talking to the other Eric. The awesome Eric, who's been on the cyber front lines for, I mean, what, decades here, it seems like. And you've been on in the private sector. You've been on the public side. Um, and, and so you have a really good perspective. And, and I'm always interested in the next five years. What's that exciting breakthrough that you could see happening for cyber and kind of turning a corner, if you will? What, what do you think that mm, would be? That's a great question. You know, I think the breakthrough that, that I am really looking to see is – this focus on assuring resiliency of our critical functions. And I, I, I'm just going to fall back on, on that. And, and the reason I say that is because, um, you know, for I think many of us in this field, the aspect of cybersecurity that keeps us up at night is the possibility of a cyber attack uh, causing the destruction or the change in a physical function that results in loss of life, that results in injury. Um, and, and, you know, it is, it is, of course, terrible when sensitive data is stolen that can have tremendous harms to its victims. And, of course, we want to limit data loss uh, to, to the extent possible. But, you know, that, that is still uh, a, a um, you know, limited risk when compared to a cyber attack on a critical infrastructure that, again, could manifest with life safety or public health uh, implications. And so moving towards a model where we are really looking carefully at our most critical functions, we're figuring out which technology assets are most critical to these functions upon which American lives depend, and then ensuring that, A, we have these security controls built around these functions to offer a reasonable sense of security, but then also move into this focus on resilience so that we can ensure that these functions remain viable, uh, even if targeted by an adversary. I think that is the trend line that I'm very excited to see continue in the years to come. Yeah, I think that would be a good place to Me get too. to. If, if we assume the breach, if we assume that it will never be perfect because the adversary has most all of the advantage, how do we become more resilient so that we continue mission, regardless of what that mission is, when, when breached, when attacked? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for the awesome work that you guys are doing at CISA, Eric. I mean, it's such an important agency and, and your mission is so critical today. I mean, particularly today and, and ahead. So thank you for, for all the awesome work that you guys are of doing. Of course. Yeah, we need, we need um, more excited. CISA these right, days to protect, CISA. This, to protect the country and, and, and the organizations and our people. I couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah. My thanks to you both for the work that, that you are doing in spreading the word and, and having these important conversations. I will also put in a plug on two fronts uh, for organizations that are interested in learning more about the services that CISA offers uh, free of charge. Uh, please do visit uh, CISA.gov. And also uh, for anybody uh, currently in or entering the cybersecurity workforce uh, and, and are interested in a extraordinary national mission uh, where we are focused on these hard issues of protecting our federal government and critical infrastructure from, from cyber threats, uh, we would love to have uh, more folks join our team. We are always hiring um, and CISA.gov is the place to go. So uh, hopefully we can uh, find some more folks to join our already awesome team. So Eric, as we're wrapping up here, question then, CISA.gov or do you go to USA Jobs? 
So I think CISA.gov is probably the, the okay. easiest starting point, and then there there will be links there to USA Jobs. But CISA.gov is our uh, single portal to learn more about what we do and opportunities that may be available. Awesome, awesome. awesome. So. Yes. Economy's coming up, coming around again, but there are amazing jobs open at CISA.gov. Yes. Highly recommend people go there and help protect this country from our adversaries. Absolutely. And you have an awesome time working on like the coolest stuff at the front lines too. I mean, let's be honest. Like that's I mean, talk about at. a mission, right? I could work at, you know, I could work at the local tractor supply store or I could protect the country and our people. I'm going to CISA.gov. Yeah, I'm going to Cisco. You go. And you're hiring Absolutely. across the country, right, Eric? I mean, we are hiring. We are hiring across the country. We are looking for a a highly diverse and highly qualified workforce uh, that can help protect America from these kind of threats. And so, absolutely. So if I'm in Kansas City or I'm in Missoula, it really doesn't matter. Wherever I am, I go there and and probably jobs local to me. I can work remote in some cases. A lot of opportunity. That's right. Awesome. So we are we're moving urgently towards a highly flexible workforce, as as accelerated with as with most most organizations by the pandemic. Uh, yeah. And so please, you know, wherever you live in this country, uh, please uh, look at look at what we do. Consider joining. It is the mission of a lifetime. I think that is a uh, th- that's going to make a big difference in the world. The opening up of you, you don't have to be in Washington D.C. You don't have to be in these big cyber centers necessarily, but you can work yes. more remotely. I think that's going to get more of the workforce in to help us with this the, the workforce shortage problem. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you both. Really a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us for this week's episode of To the Point with Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity for the Department of Homeland Security, CISA. Um, Please subscribe to the podcast. We'll get delivered to your email inbox every single week on Tuesdays. And until next time, take care. Thanks for joining us on the To the Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.